Welcome back to Don't Be Strangers, a series of wholesome conversations that focuses on fighting social isolation through stories of everyday people. I'm Shinyi, and typically I meet my co-host for the very first time while recording. If this sounds fun to you, please consider applying to co-host a future episode. Or if you're into community building and making friends, we now have a Discord channel open to you. All that information can be found on Instagram at Don't Be Strangers. Today I'm speaking with my hypnotherapist Tiffany, who was introduced to me by my friend Abhas of episode 9. The way that this was explained to me by both Abhas and Tiffany is that hypnotherapy uses light hypnosis, where you are completely conscious the entire time, to access and explore your subconscious mind. You do this to find the exact source of your issue and therefore resolve your problem in a single session as opposed to using traditional therapy where you might spend years never actually targeting the root cause. The reason why this came up in conversation was because Abhas had used and successfully resolved a problem using Tiffany's service in the past and was about to try again to tackle a different problem. Furthermore, he's had two other friends successfully use Tiffany's hypnotherapy to resolve their problems. As a fellow introspective and personal development junkie and someone who highly regards Abhas's opinion, my interest was piqued. So at the beginning of April this year, I asked Tiffany to help me with an issue I've been struggling with all of my adulthood, and I'm really happy with the results. That's just a little context for how we met. If you're interested in hearing more about my personal experience, I'll speak more to it at the end of this conversation. As someone in her 50s, I really admire Tiffany greatly for her enthusiasm and outlook she has on life. Honestly, whenever I meet someone significantly older but full of energy, I think to myself, I hope I age gracefully like you. In this next hour, we cover topics such as her experience being in a cult, how she extricated herself from that toxic environment, which occurred in parallel with her completely turning her life around in her 30s, the issue behind isolation beyond what the pandemic has generated, and embracing imperfection as the key to vulnerability and connection. With that, please meet Tiffany. My name is Tiffany Capello. I am a transformational hypnotherapist and coach in Chesterland, Ohio. I absolutely love what I do because what I help people do is change the way they think. And when you change the way you think, your entire life changes. Um, so many of our issues that we struggle with are actually rooted in uh, thinking problems, uh, beliefs that we have, uh, mindsets, restrictive identities that are holding us back from reaching our full potential. And I help people transform that. So I wanted to ask you, Shinny, what, what teacher, writer, or influence has had the biggest impression on your life? Because I know for me, there's been so many books that I've read and so many of them were absolutely life-changing. They just changed the entire trajectory of my life and I know when people are interested in bettering themselves and interested in personal development, um, they often just, they have those pivotal points in their life that are, are really make a difference for them. I'm just wondering what those pivotal points were for you and you know, who influenced that? I would say that within the past like two or three years, the my greatest influence would be Tim Ferriss. Casually, it started because my sister was taking, I don't remember what course she was taking in university, but they had to read an excerpt from his book, The 4-Hour Workweek. And she actually forwarded me that little excerpt and, and said to me, this seems very aligned with your values and like your 
the way that you perceive life. Um, and I remember I received it and like was very thankful, but I didn't actually read it at that moment that she sent it to me because like everyone else, I have like a huge running list of things I'm always doing, like an ever like growing to read list, <laughs> like to listen to podcasts, to watch like movies, documentaries, etc. Um, but for some reason, that kind of stuck as in I remembered that it was something that I wanted to read especially because it's not very common for my little sister to send me things like this to read so it was it felt like very thoughtful and very special um and during my I would say I'm trying to recall now. I think it was during the pandemic, like maybe October 2020. I did this insane um, two weeks train trip across America. And so um, it was just like a Trans-America trip. And after that trip, I was just like, I'm never going to do another train journey again. But as you can imagine, I had a lot of downtime. And it was just because you're just trapped in your cat. Well, you're not like trapped, trapped, but like you're just sitting a lot, basically. And so I, during that time, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot. And one of those things I did to fill the time um, was listening to the four hour work week. And I love that book for many reasons, but I think the reason why it resonated with me so well was just because I felt like it was the first time that I saw myself represented in someone else in the way that he is a very like Renaissance man in that he is very experimental, um, always seeking ways to become more efficient, um, more creative and questioning everything about the way that society is structured, the way that we were told to do things. And I thought, oh, me too, me too. And that's why his words like really penetrated. I think like my consciousness, my subconsciousness, and it made me like question the way that I was thinking about and structuring my life. And I rarely re-listen or reread books, but I actually like went ahead and like re-listened to it a couple months later as well. And I think I now actively listen to his podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, because I just find it so fascinating to hear about the ways that different people perceive the world um, and like structure their their creative or like um, work processes as well. So I would say that this, yeah, he is like my current like celebrity crush, I guess you could say. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like him as well, and I've watched him evolve because you know I'm older. So I've watched him evolve from the time he first hit you know popularity to now, and he's, he's it's interesting to see him grow as a person. So what do you think you learned? What was the most important, valuable thing you learned from Tim Ferriss? around 2020 and I've I've always kind of like fluctuated back and forth between the idea of 
how I don't want to fit myself into the professional nine to five life. And therefore, what is the alternative to a nine to five is to become your own a boss to like run your own business. And I always struggled with this idea of like, okay, well, if I don't want the nine to five, then the only other alternative is to is to become an entrepreneur. But I think what he introduced to me through his book was this idea that you don't have to choose one or the other. Like you could be an employee, but also still find freedom through it as well. And I thought that that was kind of revolutionary for me just because I I have like dabbled in entrepreneurship and like tried to try to dip my toes into that realm. But I also realize as he explains through his experiences and his um, written works that that being an entrepreneur does not necessarily liberate you in the way that you think that it could um, in the situation of the nine to five, because you could just trap yourself in your business as well. So from being trapped in your nine to five to becoming trapped in your business. And so I realized that there was greater work to be done on myself. I can totally see how my like perfectionism tendencies could just force me to move into, you know, just translate that into another, like another situation as well. And I think on this realm too, the way that you and I met was actually because I wanted to work on my issue of productivity. And so this is something that I've um, dealt with for the majority of my adulthood, well, the majority of my life probably, but something that I recognize in adulthood. And it, given that context, you can imagine how like I would have probably just trapped myself in my business being like not allowing myself to do anything besides my business because of my need to feel productive. Yeah. And when you said Tim Ferriss, knowing you, I thought, wow, that is such a good match. <laughs> <laughs> Years, but I thought I could see how you would be immediately attracted to him because that's what he initially, anyway, was all about is productivity um, yeah. and maximizing that. Um, I'm very similar, and I have had the experience um, of I was a stay at home mom for many years and in a cult, but um, so you don't do anything but be a stay at home mom in that particular group, but then later. You know, as I was very much into productivity there, uh, it was sort of demanded of you, and, and that perfectionism was a part of my life as well. Um, so that's the same reason I found Tim Harris was, how could I get more done? And I was getting tired. I thought, I'm tired. I, my, my mind, my body was crying for downtime and rest. I am very curious and I don't know if you would feel comfortable sharing this, but like your experiences being in a cult and how did you transition out of that? Because I would imagine how difficult it would be to like extricate yourself from a situation where like you're fed these norms that are maybe like not normal. <laughs> I wasn't born into it and I think it sort of gives me a unique perspective. Um, you know, because I moved into it as an adult. And I moved into it because my mom um, was an alcoholic. There were a lot of issues revolving there. Uh, you know, that when my growing up, some childhood trauma, et cetera. And as I entered, got married, entered into parenthood, I thought, how in the world am I going to be a parent? Like, I want to do it perfect. 
because of my perfectionistic tendencies. Um, and so I thought, well, who better to know how to teach me to raise my child than God? Because it was already somewhat religious. So I began to seek answers in church, in the Bible. Um, and unfortunately, you know, um, I, I believe it is possible, even as someone coming out of a cult, uh, to get into, you know, loving spiritual community. Um, and I did not, right from the onset, um, I sort of entered into what I now term the lunatic fringe of Christianity. And then just like a frog slowly boiling in water without realizing it, I became increasingly more fundamentalist um, in my thought processes. Um, and the next thing you know, I, I was definitely on the lunatic fringe of what I, I guess I would term the radical right you know, religious right, um, and I'm, you know, sort of a moderate now, so I'm not doubting any particular political affiliation, um, but, you know, that's just where religious fundamentalism happens to fall on the political spectrum, so, you know, and in that, uh, my goal was, interestingly enough, because we, we started on this topic, but the reason I gravitated toward that lunatic fringe was my perfectionism, I wanted to be, if I couldn't just be a Christian and a follower of the Bible, I wanted to be a perfect Christian and a perfect follower of the Bible. So I fell from into like literalism and a literalistic interpretation of the Bible as, okay, if it says it, if God said it, I have to obey it, doesn't matter how difficult it is, whether it makes logical sense, whether it harms certain uh, people groups, uh, and you know, it seemed like a good fit in it. It met my need for that black and white thinking. There's one, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And by golly, I'm going to do it right. And who better to know what's right than God? And so I had this belief that God wrote the Bible and therefore everything in there is to be taken literally. And so I did so. Well, the problem was, um, you know, over time, I began to see some problems. Um, you know, the Bible was, the literal interpretation of the Bible was supposed to, um, you know, make me happy and healthy and have a good marriage and be a good mom. And I saw the opposite of that occurring. I was getting more and more anxiety. The emphasis was on perfectionism. The emphasis was on law and rules and, um, you know, and doing things a certain way. It was, um, cults tend to operate by using fear and shame to motivate members. Now, if you're a perfectionist, you're already good at the fear and the shame angle. I need to be perfect or, and you have fearful consequences mapped out in your mind. I need to be perfect or, and then you attach shame to that. Um, you know, many agree, there's many reasons why people naturally fall into this tendency from childhood, from culture, um, from media influences, from teachers. I mean, th there's a plethora of reasons, but, you know, falling into religion just inoculated me further. And perfectionism is a unique and insidious form of self-abuse. Um, and most people don't see it that way. They see their perfectionism as a way to motivate themselves to become better. 
is actually not what occurs because when we are shamed, when we are fearful, um, it actually has the opposite effect of what we're trying to do in our life of becoming a better person. Um, shame tends to drive people towards addictive and destructive behaviors. Uh, there's a phrase in the NLP world um, that shame is a down payment on future behavior. So if you're trying to break bad habits, we often look to perfectionism as our salvation. We set rules and boundaries and we find we have more difficulty breaking those bad habits. So in any event, as I'm looking around in my community, we were very sequestered because cults keep control over you using fear and shame and um, making you afraid of listening to other ideas, talking to other people, because they know that if you do that, you might be pulled out of the group to another way of thinking. Now, in the group I was in and in most cults, you know, if you don't believe a certain way, then you're going to face eternal damnation in hell. What's scarier, if you believe it, than burning for all eternity in hell? Like you can't feasibly come up with anything worse than believing that. So it puts this hold over all the congregants. Um, and you're afraid to do anything that could put you in the slightest danger of that. So as I'm looking around me, I'm noticing things. I'm noticing that I am getting increasingly anxious and depressed. I'm noticing that my relationship with my husband at that time is not that great because we were taught women have no rights. They're to submit to male leadership, to men. Um, that wasn't working for a nice relationship. That wasn't working to foster connection. It was supposed to because the Bible said. I was noticing that I, you know, the way I was being asked to parent my kids did not resonate. It did not feel loving. It was a very authoritarian, fear-shame-based parenting style. Um, it didn't feel right. I felt cruel. And, um, and, I, and so I couldn't uh, mesh that in my mind. I noticed that the women in my church, particularly, um, you know, birth control wasn't really something you were supposed to use. So a lot of us had many children. I ended up having 10 pregnancies and seven children. So um, it's hard on their health and it was hard on them because we don't live in an agrarian society um, where, you know, that sort of lifestyle is easier to manage. Um, we live in a very complex society and um, we were asked to homeschool our kids. And um, I looked at these women and I saw them suffering. I wasn't the only one. They were suffering from emotional and mental health issues. Um, they were suffering from exhaustion. They had a lot of stress-related health disorders like irritable bowel, um, eczema, allergies, um, you know, uh, autoimmunity, things like that, you know, that have a stress component. So I'm looking around me thinking, hmm, the fruit of the spirit is supposed to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I'm not seeing any of that. And I started to question why, what could be happening here? And I, my mental health was getting worse. Uh, my oldest daughter was having some issues with depression, severe anxiety. Um, and it was really that that really started to make me question because when you're a mother, you know, it's that mother tiger thing. Don't mess with my kid. 
And so in an effort to help her and seeing how the church is dealing with that, they were actually making the problem worse. The problem is, shame on you. The problem is you're not obeying God. The problem is you're not really trusting the Bible. It's my kid, you know? And I'm looking at myself, I'm looking at my kid, saying, actually, we're really trying hard. We're memorizing Bible verses. This, it's like taking a medication and you can clearly see it's not working and it's making you worse. But the doctor keeps telling you the answer is the medication. It's not working. And so I um, came across, when we talk about pivotal influencers, came across a book by Tony Robbins in the library. Um, and I don't remember which one it was that he wrote, but I read the book and I thought, wow, you know, I, I'm smart enough to know that if I thought like this, I'd be a lot happier. And yet everything I was taught was the polar opposite of what he was teaching. And I'm thinking, hmm. So I started to look into the world of positive psychology. Uh, I liked positive psychology because it asks, it doesn't, it's not the study of pathological thinking, it's actually the study of how happy people think, how non-anxious people think. That's what I wanted to be. And so I studied that and I realized once again, this is the polar opposite of everything I'm being taught to think within my fundamentals cult. And that was the first time I started to question something is wrong here. How old were you when you like joined the cult? And then how old were you when, or slash how old was your daughter when you started noticing like these issues that like kind of accelerated your search to escape out of it? When I was a teenager, my grandmother was very religious. She was into the televangelists and stuff. And I think she had some influence on me um, there when I would go to visit her. Um, but so I, I had that sort of religious leaning. Um, and I think it was about 18 when I first started to go to church. Um, the churches I was attending at this time would not be considered a cult. I think it was like a Quaker evangelical type church. Now, looking back now, I have a very broad definition of a cult. So I consider many mainstream Christian churches to be cults based on the psychological dynamics within the group. So looking back on it, there were definitely some cultic elements. However, um, I joined that group and then after I got married, um, that is when, so that was maybe, I, I joined there at 18. So I got married at 22. Um, I met my ex-husband in that group, I think when I was like 20, 21, I think it was 20. Um, that church was definitely more, it was a, a charismatic type Pentecostal, name it, claim it, faith healing type church. Um, and I got married there. That was a very toxic, very toxic place uh, in retrospect. And then started having kids right away. Um, and then when I really started to question, I think I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into fundamentalism until I was around 34. At 34, I got really ill with chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome and about five other diseases. So even prior to it, I, and I was very stressed, very stressed. Being sick and having nothing to do but lay around 
um, and trying to figure out how you're going to care for your children. And I had a farm uh, with farm animals and trying to figure all that out. Began, I began to really question at that time, why am I sick? I eat organic food that I raise on my own farm. I mean, it's like I couldn't do anything better, but I never slept because I had to be productive. So, you know, I had to be perfect and I needed more hours to accomplish that perfectionism. And that's what God sort of required, you know? It was like, it's like being on a treadmill, you can never get off because there's an angry deity and he's gonna be pissed if you get off that treadmill. So, um, so I was sick for two years really bad. And uh, it was around that time that I found, you know, Tony Robbins. And I was on my way to recovery when my daughter got sick uh, with, she had like a mild form of OCD that would sometimes be quite severe and depression. And she was about 11 and a half. And interestingly enough, I'll touch on this point. If you're in a cultic type group, or a fear or shame based group, a lot of those groups don't uh, acknowledge mental health issues. They are sin issues. Um, and so imagine having your 11 year old daughter, you know, have sin issues when I had the sweetest, most loving um, little girl that wanted, tried so hard to be a good girl and wanted to do what's right. And, um, you know, there's judgment flying and you're, you know, you're not trusting God, you're not doing this, you're not, and it was so awful. And you're not permitted within many of these groups to seek out a mental health professional. Um, now this turned out to be a fortunate thing because um, in the mental health world, there's not a lot uh, that can be done for OCD. So, and I'm not downing medications and stuff necessarily, but you know, they just, at that particular time, um, there wasn't a lot of treatment available outside of medication and some be cognitive behavioral therapies, um, which have their utility. But not being able to use that, um, I had to do my own research. I was already used to doing that because it's how I turned my health around. I found Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz out in California who had a um, more of a mindfulness-based approach to OCD. In order to make it acceptable to the church, I had to Christianize it. And so I pulled, and I kind of did this to convince myself as well, but I found Bible verses to support each of his four-step recovery process. And then I was able to make it acceptable to the church. And they thought I'd come up with some genius, you know, can tell them it came from Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, the psychiatrist. Oh God, no. So they probably thought I had this marvelous revelation from God. My daughter applying that neuroplastic mindfulness-based process was able to overcome her OCD in about six months. And that, again, set my mind to thinking, you know, here the answer wasn't necessarily in the Bible, um, you know, and so... And I, I thought about the restrict. you know, if I had allowed those restrictions to remain in my mind, she would have never been better. And so I just kept really studying uh, what, how do happy people think? How, you know, it was so different than the way I thought, the way my church taught me to think, the way the women in my church taught me to think. And I became really interested in how 
our beliefs and thought processes impact our life on a day-to-day basis. Since you're already kind of going in this direction, can you bridge that point to your current career? The interesting thing was that um, wanting to change my beliefs, because I'm now recognizing this is the issue, this is a problem. My beliefs, my mindset are causing my suffering. Um, So recognizing that, I sought to change it. So I began reading as much as I could with that many children. reading a lot of books on uh, positive psychology, mindset change, I began, there wasn't a lot, like nowadays you just, I mean, there's thousands. There wasn't a lot back then like there is now. You didn't go on YouTube, I didn't have a cell phone. You didn't go on YouTube and there's a plethora of positive, you know, personal development videos for you to watch. I didn't have access to that. I don't think YouTube existed then. But I learned what I could, but the problem was um, the change was very slow. So when you're suffering from extreme anxiety, when you're suffering from depression, when you're miserable, every day is difficult to get through. And so I was doing the best I can. I went on like that for years. I'm making, inching my way towards better mental health, inching my way towards progress. I was was moving forward. And then um, I decided to leave the cult at some point. You're literally, I will tell you, and not to toot my own horn, but for all of the people out there that have ever left religion, their their church, their cult groups, you are the bravest people. Because if you're in a cult, um, they will excommunicate you. You basically lose your entire world and your world becomes that community. And so in leaving that, it was completely, I had to completely remake life. I ended up divorced and I'm a single mom with six children because one of my children unfortunately passed away. You know, in this situation and very raw, very wounded, not much self-esteem. I've been told for years that as a woman, my job was to serve and uplift a man. Um, I now don't have a man. And honestly, the first thing I did in that, from that perspective, because I still had a lot of that thinking is I need to find a good man. That's what I need to find, a good man out. And, and my lawyer at the time, my divorce lawyer said, honey, I'm really worried about you. She said, you are going to be, it's gonna be open season on you by narcissists and men who could read your weakness. And I thought, no, I'm too smart for that. First relationship I got in, um, a narcissistic psychopath type, who's really mentally, sick um he his pure joy in life was to watch you squirm and suffer and of course he was wonderful for months until i fell in love with him and what little self-worth i had i think when i left the fundamentalist church um was stripped away at that point and finally i got the courage to dissolve that i i was I was flattened. So I'm going to interrupt here to say that if you found any of these topics interesting or relatable, please hit pause right now to give this show a follow and a rating. Or if you know of a friend who needs to hear what's being shared here, please take two seconds to message them this episode. It'd mean the world to me to be able to expand the reach of who this podcast could potentially help. I mean, I was flattened. And I was at the time a personal trainer. I taught a senior fitness class. And there was a gentleman in my senior fitness class 
who kept inviting me to a weekend spiritual retreat. Um, and I kept declining. <laughs> but I don't have time for this. And I, 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 I went. He said, I think, you know, you're going through a lot. I think this will really help you. I went and it was all about the subconscious mind. And I, it was like I had died and gone to heaven and my brain just opened up and I thought, I understood myself. I understood what I'd been through. I understood what I was going through now. I was so excited, but I was waiting. What I was waiting for in this weekend retreat was the solution. How do I impact my subconscious mind? And I kept, and finally, it's like getting to the end of the session, I'm like, I'm not hearing a solution. So I asked them, you know, how can I impact my subconscious mind? Because now I realize just how vast of a thinking change I need to make. Now it's just cataloged for me. I'm real clear on my limiting beliefs, toxic thought processes, and I was thankful for that. Well, you can read books. We have a weekly support group. I'm thinking, oh my God. So now I'm, I went from here, you know, from being high up to, you know, down to being discouraged because now I realize just how vast the problem is and I'm given the same solution. You need to read books. You need to watch videos. You need to do support groups, go to seminars. I'm like, I've been doing that. So I'm thinking I'm going to be 90 before I'm ever happy because now I realize the problem's even bigger than I thought. So I began to seek out how can I truly change my subconscious mind? I found Joe Dispenza and his books, Evolve Your Brain, and it was all about neuroplasticity and change. I knew brains could change. I watched my daughter retrain hers. Um, so what I did was begin to read all his books and study his material, and I'm thankful to him. But the solution he had was this uh, visualization meditation process that I'm sure works from a subconscious perspective, but it required an hour to two hours of meditation a day. The goal was to work this meditative process until an internal shift occurred, especially emotionally. I didn't have two hours a day. Um, I'm a single mom. I was going back to school at that point for physical therapy. I do not have time to meditate two hours a day. So um, I kept looking for answers and uh, bumped into hypnosis, probably doing an internet search. Being skeptical, after being in a religious cult for 15 years, you do not swallow pills easily. I had to do six months of research. I looked at the research coming out of Stanford, out of Toronto. Um, what was the efficacy of hypnosis? Was it the placebo effect? I had all these questions. Um, it doesn't really work. Once I established in my mind, it actually was impacting the subconscious. It was able to shift issues and beliefs and do it rapidly because you were targeting the subconscious. Then I was gung-ho. I wanted to be trained. So I was already working in physical therapy at the time, wanted to be trained in hypnosis. And that's how, you know, and I never have regretted that decision. Uh, both for myself and for my clients, it's been 
a rapid and lasting way to create change. It doesn't work for everybody, but for most people, about nine out of 10 of my clients, it is phenomenal. First of all, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, but one, I really want to know, how do you balance your time? <laughs> Given that you're still a full-time mom now that you run this business of yours, um, and yeah, do you find time for yourself between all of that? This is an interesting question because it's something I'm consistently working on. I am not good at it. I'm making progress, but it's probably been within the last six months. I've actually made the greatest amount of progress. I really understand what a lot of single moms are going through. It's difficult, you know, you have to pay the bills. You know, I would say I, I jump right into the tendency to overwork. It's nine o'clock at night, I'm home, but I'm not, I'm still, I'm on my computer. And having had a physical illness that was directly brought on by stress and lack of sleep, I was probably more cautious than I would have been, but not cautious enough. And I started to get a lot of headaches and I'm exhausted and tired. And I was seeing a uh, functional medicine doctor and she just picking up on it. She's like, listen, uh, you can't work this many hours. And so I was constantly because my health would get a little iffy, I'd have to keep pushing myself back. It's like a warning signal from my body to my mind saying, hey, this isn't working for me. This is not enough rest, not enough downtime. As well, our, our culture in the United States pushes us towards uh, your worth is tied to your productivity. Your worth is tied to your status, the success of your business or um, how valuable you are to your company. Um, so it's difficult for people to see past that when everything in the culture pushes them in that direction. Because I was sick was probably the reason why um, I valued health a lot. So I was making those considerations, but it was difficult for me to see um, how to navigate that. Um, I still have, like now I have two children at home. 15 year old and an 18 year old. Uh, when I first got divorced, I had six children in a 1100 square foot home with no basement. That was rough and it, it was busy. It was busy. Um, so now business is doing better and I have more opportunities, more choices. And one of the most important things for me is to have a hard stop at the end of my day. So that means when I leave my office, my computer does not come home with me. I don't check work emails. I don't respond to clients, which I'm not too good at, honestly. Um, I make quick response. I don't make phone calls. Uh, weekends, I usually do, and I think I, I need to work towards changing this. I am working too much on the administrative business side of my business still on the weekend. I still need to implement more time for just doing fun things. The biggest change I've made recently is that I go to bed earlier. Um, if I don't have downtime in the evening, I don't sleep well. Mine is still going, it's geared. So trying to set aside time every weekend to pick up a book. If it's 10 minutes, it's better than zero minutes. But to try to set aside at least a half an hour to an hour to read. And that nurtures me mentally, physically, because I'm resting and spiritually as well, because I'm growing personally as a result of reading the book. 
what else do you consider as like fun activities that you want to incorporate more of? Oh, I think for productivity perfectionist types, when you first start fun, it doesn't feel right. It feels like it feels like you're lazy or slacking or doing something wrong. Uh, and in the fundamentalist, my boyfriend calls the fundamentalist church no fundamentalism. <laughs> Because fun was kind of a sin, you know, there's a few fun activities, you're allowed to go to church volleyball and things like that, but, you know, for many of those groups, you know, it's all about seriousness, and God's not, there's a famous phrase that I heard in several churches, God's not concerned with your happiness, he's concerned with your holiness, and so everything he does is along those names, so that was your goal. And so it was a real mindset shift for me to think about having fun. Um, so, you know, there were times when my fun was less healthy for me. It involved, you know, going to a bar and drinking uh, too much. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't do a lot of that. Having an alcoholic mom, I wasn't interested in repeating that pattern. But, um, you know, I like, I like to be in nature, you know, to be honest with you. I like just sitting by a river, taking a walk in the woods. I would like to go camping. I haven't been doing that. Um, I love to travel. I had the great privilege of going to Italy to visit relatives. Um, it was the highlight of my life. It was the only time in my life when I think I was 100% in the present moment for days on end. And every day was like the, a toddler put in a room full of toys. Uh, I was just like, oh, oh, it was the most beautiful place I've seen ever. So when I'm in a better financial situation, I would like to do more traveling. Um, so my fun to most people listening would be very boring. I love to cook. So my fun is cooking something really nice for my boyfriend. And I don't use recipes. I just create. And I love that. Watching a movie, going out to dinner. Um, it's very simple, um, and uh, I do like going to concerts and things, but um, you know, COVID kind of put a damper on a lot of that, and then you fall into that rut where you're used to not doing that, and everyone as a culture is used to not doing that. So now it's interesting. I find it difficult to find people to do things with, and my boyfriend is also an entrepreneur. He's quite busy. We don't have like a social group together too much. He's very much an introvert. And, and a lot of the friends that I had are now fallen into the same patterns of post-COVID introversion. And they fill their lives with other things. And I think it's important. I don't know how we're going to get there as a culture. But one of the main reasons people suffer emotionally and mentally and spiritually is because for all of human history, we've evolved to live in social communities. And now I think probably a good portion of people um, live very isolated, lonely lives. Um, I wouldn't even put myself outside that category. I feel like I need more connection. And I'm not talking about on social media. I'm talking about face-to-face -face people you can hug. My idea of fun is that connection. Maybe the word fun doesn't seem to fit there, but I would, I would say I'm more interested in joy. And I think um, that connection just brings me joy. But 
even with the people that I've been connected with, long-term friends I've had, just trying to find time when everyone's schedule can connect has been a huge challenge. So, you know, whereas I used to be able to connect with people regularly, now it's like, how about we get some lunch? Well, on Friday I'm doing this, and then I have this and that. And it's like I'm finding that I'm connecting with people on Zoom at lunch because otherwise there'd be no connection at all. So that's something I'm really actively trying to improve and I don't know that I have real excellent answers or solutions. Um, I think it's a challenge for everyone. Yeah, I love that you brought up this topic because that is the <laughs> that is the thesis of my podcast is to how do we make connections but like meaningful connections connections that make people feel fulfilled because isolation is a real issue it impacts our health directly Um, and I understand the the importance of having a strong social network um, a strong like emotional support system for your longevity and I'm all about health um, as well and I believe in health holistically so beyond just diet and exercise but like mental emotional like your social aspect too from my point of view there's a lot of frustration because I felt like the rise of like the internet and social media to a certain extent open up the possibilities to meet people beyond your immediate proximity like circle of of people that you have access to but at the same time the amount of isolation that has grown out from internet culture and then the catalyst that was COVID to make this even worse, honestly. <laughs> yeah, like so much worse. Because I feel like with the internet, and I I have been able to use the internet to to make and find a lot of like meaningful friendships. But um, at the same time, I feel like the isolation comes from a lot of like the accessibility for comparison and therefore causing you to kind of like retreat into yourself. That division, I think, um, is what I'm trying to break down by having these conversations to, to make people feel that like they're not alone. So by me having these conversations with a diversity of people and exposing these stories, that hopefully someone listening to these will feel that they can identify with parts of these stories, but then also to feel more confident, generally speaking, to want to be vulnerable and to want to make connections in a a more profound manner. Connections at like a very superficial manner is, is not difficult. Like there is going to be exposure to people, but how do you, how do you get to the point where it feels meaningful to you where you can derive like joy and a sense of purpose within the relationship the the other person is providing you something meaningful and that you can do the same for them so it feels mutual as well i think it's good that you know you're a lot younger than me i'm 52 and that you're seeing that because so many people in your generation are not seeing it um and they you know they don't understand a lot, like, especially my kids, you know, uh, my older kids know in the cult, we probably have phones and computers later than most people. Um, and they have, I see the difference. My younger kids are great kids, but they, it's beyond them to see that social media is a problem or that it's negatively affecting them in any way. And when you're on social media, you're getting a very small part of who someone actually is. And I don't think it's possible 
to get to know someone at a deep level from texting and even Zoom calls, um, you miss so much of what it, you know, what it takes to have true connection, you know? And I believe what it takes to have true connections, first of all, willingness to be vulnerable. Now, being vulnerable is a lot easier on social media because there's a certain level of anonymity. But with that anonymity, it also allows you to be a lot less compassionate. So there's a cruelty that's on social media because you're not looking at that person's face. You're not seeing their tears. Um, so there's much more um, cruelty and lack of compassion in that social media world. Um, and it's doing a real number on the younger generation. I think it's directly related to the massive, um, talk about a pandemic, the massive increase of anxiety and depression. I think, uh, if I don't know if I'm getting this statistic right, but I believe from 2011, now that's not a lot of years, um, that anxiety and depression among the younger generation has increased by 54%. That's significant and alarming. Wow. Um, and it's not sustainable. Um, the level of social interaction we have today, the lack of connection is not sustainable. Um, if we as a culture and society do not come up with solutions, and this podcast is a solution, you know, to, to bring awareness to that. And so it's very important. Um, if we don't come up with solutions, um, we're going to see some real problems um, that lead me to question, you know, the future of our civilizations as they now stand. Um, I'm very concerned without trying to be, you know, nihilistic about it, but um, yeah, I think we definitely are going to need some change. And I don't see that change happening now because I don't think enough people are aware of the problem, but in the next 10 to 20 years, I think it's gonna be such, so glaringly apparent that we're gonna see some changes occurring. Um, because you really have to have a true vulnerability um, and you have to have a safety within a relationship. Uh, the world of the internet is not a safe space. Um, we all have witnessed, you know, if you say one thing wrong or if you say something that's taken out of context, um, you have this level of anonymity that suddenly disappears and you now, <laughs> you are now famous for saying something horrible that you didn't even actually say or said, and it was grossly misconstrued. Um, this is becoming a huge problem because uh, the way social media works, the way the algorithms work, um, it's about getting likes and views. And um, so it presents to you what you wanna see. And the goal is for you to be outraged. If you are outraged, you're going to share that content you're going to talk about it more. There's going to be more likes. That is good for advertisers and um, social media platforms know that. So they will promote uh, content that will outrage you. This is not conducive to us having a peaceful society. So depending on what, what your current beliefs are, they will present to you whatever will outrage that set of beliefs. Um, so what you're not doing is being out in the community and meeting people who have different personalities and different lifestyles and different beliefs and actually talking face to face with those people 
and learning from them. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but I have changed my beliefs on a topic because of an individual I've met that I was able to have a respectful discourse with, you know? And we're losing the ability, um, and maybe we never had it, I don't know, but it seems to me that uh, it's less likely to occur now to just be able to sit down at a table with someone that holds a different viewpoint from us and talk about that viewpoint in a respectful manner um, without being triggered. And if we are triggered, uh, maintaining a level of maturity so that you can actually still continue to communicate while listening and try and understand. So one of the things I teach clients is to learn to listen, to understand. Don't listen to respond. If when you're listening, your goal in your connection with another individual is to respond and make your point, um, you're gonna end up in an argument. If you're listening to truly understand, even if you consider that other person's lifestyle, that other person's viewpoint to be deplorable or ridiculous or idiotic, um, listen. Because I have found that by listening to people that I disagree with, sometimes I end up agreeing with them. And this is how relationships develop. And in our social media culture, it is so easy just to cut somebody out, to cancel them out, to remove them from your life and never sit and actually have to listen to them. Never see their actual pain. Never understand what it's like for them to live on a day-to-day -day basis as the person they are. You know, we don't see that if we're all sequestered in our homes, staring at computer screens and having the information and the people we come in contact with filtered according to what the social media world wants us to see. I don't know what the solutions are. Um, I think the most important solution is to just get out and connect with people. That's more of a challenge than it ever has been. I know there's, they're talking about developing some new apps that actually attempt to do that. And maybe you're aware of what some of them are, but you know, instead of us all getting on Facebook and spending hours and we've all done it, we think, my God, it's been 45 minutes. I was just going to check my messages and we've wasted all that time. And in that time, we could have walked next door to see how our neighbor is doing, who's sitting out on her porch right now, wondering why no one sits on their porch anymore. <laughs> you know, because she doesn't have the internet, she's 75. And that 75-year-old neighbor has so much wisdom from having lived through so much. And she's sitting there lonely and we're just bustling and busy and rushing. Another thing, another big challenge for connection is the busyness of our lives. The computer has made life so easy in so many respects, but then again, it has made life so incredibly busy now what you're expected to deal with and get done is so much more. Um, it's just squashing out time to socialize. So people just don't have it. I'm older, so I don't have small children anymore. And my friends, most of them don't have small children anymore. And we still can't seem to find the time uh, with all the emails and phone calls and text messages and paperwork to file. Joke all the time that um, when I die, I will probably have spent five years total typing in passwords before I die. <laughs>
and try to remember passwords, you know? <laughs> so um, I think we have to really make an effort like never before to connect with people and to find people to connect with. There are people out there willing um, and to force ourselves out of our shells. And as someone who primarily deals with anxiety with clients, the social anxiety people now feel is so much worse than, uh, you know, before the social media era, era, because now they're able to get online, have that anonymity and um, connect. That's good, but it's so shallow. So it's better than nothing, but it's not what truly nurtures us as human beings. And you probably know this, co-regulate with other people in that face-to-face -face interaction. Our nervous systems co-regulate. Um, this is why angry, toxic people in the same room with you can make you start to feel anxious. But at the same time, when you're with people who are have that energy of compassion and love, and there's just that physical presence, it's a calming influence. Um, it's a necessary influence. We evolved to live in tribal groups and in small communities. I was just listening to a podcast by an evolutionary psychologist saying for most of human history, you've never came in contact with more than 150 people. And from a neurological perspective, we can catalog information on about 150 people that we can actually develop a close connection to. And um, we're being asked to put this sort of data in our mind on the 4,000 people that are currently my Facebook friends, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, you don't get to know them. You don't get to know anyone on the sort of deep level you did um, then. And if you just pick up um, literature, from like the 1800s. I think the best example of this is um, Anne of Green Gables, that series. I love it. I'm not a child anymore, not a teenage girl, but I love it because these characters that lived in the small community of Prince Edward Island had their, all had their own little nuances. They had their own little idiosyncrasies and flaws. Everyone knew it. You meshed together, you worked on it, you didn't always like it. Um, but it was so interesting to see her develop these characters and all the little nuances of their personality. And we don't have that. We don't spend enough time with people. And everybody's dispensable. If you don't like your wife, you don't have to. And I'm not criticizing people that are divorced. I'm divorced. You know, there's things you can't work out. But in general, people are so dispensable. I could date you for three weeks and the first time, you know, you blow your nose and I think that's gross. I can get rid of you for someone who never blows their nose, you know, and we become perfectionistic about the way we deal with people. And let's just toss this person aside and get another one. Um, because there's 45,000 people on online dating. Is it good we have online dating? I'm thankful in a way because it was hard to meet people when I was young, <laughs> you know? It was hard. Now you get to meet so many unique people, but there's it's the yin and yang of life. There's a positive and there's a negative, and the negative is you're dispensable. So you've got to work harder to find people that value connection and are seeking connection as much as you are.
in, in this toss away, you know, quick fix society. There are those people out there. I think over time we're going to develop ways, even technologies, to help those people find one another. And speaking of connections, I need to ask you, how do you define a stranger and at what point do they transition from being one to not being one? It's interesting, and I'll tell you how that's transitioned, because in when I was in a religious cult, anyone outside our group was an enemy. And so I was actually sort of brainwashed into believing that anyone who doesn't believe or think like me is actually an enemy. And so strangers were all enemies. <laughs> and I didn't feel safe in the world. And so I, I kind of almost don't have that perception of stranger because I have more of a spiritual type of view of individuals. So while a stranger is someone I don't necessarily know, I feel completely comfortable like walk into a room full of quote unquote strangers. And I pretty much have the assumption that you're innocent and a nice person until you prove yourself to be a high conflict individual or toxic or dangerous. Um, and I believe that most people are good as opposed to believing most people are bad. And I don't, you know, there are people that we would classify as dangerous, violent, bad, you know, um, we need to remove them from our lives. But most people are good, and when you listen to them and you understand their story, um, so I don't like to keep people in the stranger category. I like to move them towards at least being acquaintance. And I think the key from to moving someone from stranger to friend is for you to be willing to be authentic and vulnerable. When I finally love myself enough to be my true and authentic self in front of someone, so worry about what they thought, you know, to say, how can I just bless this person instead of trying to impress them? I realized that people love that. When you demonstrate that free and they go, wow, Tiffany just shared something that's pretty raw and intimate. And now I'll share. So someone can move from a stranger to a friend really fast when you're willing to be vulnerable but if you're never willing to be vulnerable to some extent they can never know you and they probably won't feel comfortable with you knowing them so they'll stay somewhat of a stranger even though you've known them for years a lot of married couples look this way where they don't really know each other i think i've mentioned to you that this is the question i ask everyone because it's directly related to the topic of the podcast and I was wondering, like, I think after the fifth episode, when will the answers start repeating themselves to a point where it's like not interesting for me to ask this question anymore. But honestly, I don't think it'll ever happen because everyone brings like a unique perspective based off of their like experiences. And I've never heard the the perspective of from the the context of the cult that everyone outside your group is an enemy and because I've heard of the phrase like stranger danger for example and I we've discussed this a couple of times but I think stranger danger is a very different sentiment or feeling than like enemy because like <laughs> I, I guess like when I when I think of the word enemy it makes me angry it makes me want to fight as opposed to like stranger danger that might just make me like 
anxious and like, you know, retreat. So that's really fascinating. The point about being vulnerable first, I think is so important. Um, and I've heard discussions of people being scared to be vulnerable first, because they're afraid of moving too fast and scaring like whoever they're conversing with. That's interesting. I think particularly as it pertains to dating, because that's where you hear that term moving too fast. So um, yeah, I've been in a relationship with my boyfriend for like, I think almost three years. Um, so I'm not actually dating, it doesn't apply to me directly. But when I was, um, I just decided at some point to be me. And if somebody doesn't like it, um, who cares? And in the effort to not waste other people's times, there's just people in this world you are not going to get along with, um, whether it's in dating or friendship. There's just too many differences. They're not bad people, you know, but there's just you have different personalities and it's going to be a complex situation because the way your, your worldview is. Um, so I like to lay that out on the table. So I am like the ultra vulnerable person. Like I just pretty much spill it. So, I, you know, I would go on a date and just say, listen, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I'm not interested in hooking up. I'm looking for a quality relationship. This is what that looks like. If that scares you, then adios. I don't think people should be scared of vulnerability. I'm not shaming anyone who is. If you're scared of vulnerability, it's probably because when you were vulnerable in the past, someone hurt you. Um, and so now vulnerability is scary for you. But there's nothing actually wrong with vulnerability. And um, I think you truly, you know, you do put yourself at risk if two people meet and they're highly vulnerable early on, they're gonna get connected really fast, you know? So, I mean, there's some normal anxiety, I think that people put themselves down for. When you first meet someone who's quote unquote a stranger, um, you do have to have a level of caution simply because you don't know that individual. And the first uh, three months of dating, you're dating someone's alter ego most of the time. <laughs> they are trying to impress you. And I hoped that I did not do that. I set out dating not to present a false front to anyone. Because if they find out in three months I'm not who I presented myself to be, we're in a loser situation. I'm going to get hurt. That individual gets hurt. Um, so ultimately, I think it's, it's best to be as vulnerable as you safely can with someone. Because if you really have a strong sense of self-worth and you really do love who you are, which is what I help people to do, even those parts of your personality that you're working to change, you should feel you're good enough to be a friend to someone. And you should have a strong sense of self-worth so that when you meet somebody, that person's opinion really is irrelevant of you. If you can get to that place, you'll be able to be vulnerable. And you can get to that place. Um, even if you struggle with that now, it's about ultimately changing those beliefs that I have value because um, I do. And nobody knows you like you know yourself. So nobody really has a right to judge you. They don't know what you think. They don't know what you've been through. And so you should be able to very confidently put yourself out there. Um, you know, Brene Brown is the best example of that. When I read her book, The Gift of Imperfection, I thought, how courageous is it? for her to write within a book that she took cookies to her child's school activity and tried to pass them off as home-baked. That's fantastic that she is comfortable enough with herself to be able to admit that she did something and then laugh about it. I think that is so awesome. And I think that's the point at which we need to get because when people see 
that you know you're not perfect and you can laugh about that and you love yourself for who you are, they know they can't victimize you. If you tell me, Tiffany, you know, you're a dumb blonde or you're not very intellectual. Now, if I was told my whole life that I was stupid or I was a dumb blonde, that might trigger me. And then I might be offended, upset. In reality, when people know we have an incredibly strong sense of self-worth, they know that you won't be put down. You know, you're in a way protecting yourself. So I think the most important thing you could do for connection, really have a lot of confidence and a strong sense of self-worth and a really deep and abiding love for yourself. Not in a way, that I'm more important than other people, but I'm just as good. I'm just as capable, competent. I can learn what I need to learn. There is no one on this earth that has more value than me. There's no one on this earth that has less value than me. We all have equal value. When I learned that in my, and it became deeply rooted in my subconscious, I became less of a doormat. I was trained within fundamentalism to let people walk all over me. I try to be very nice. I'm not easily offended. So you can say some pretty rude stuff to me and it'll just go, Fear. and people look at me like that was rude. And I'm thinking, that doesn't bother me. And there's a point at which, you know, I'm going to stand up for myself and I might even get mad. In reality, uh, it's important to heal those wounds that are inside of us that prevent us from connecting. And I think when we do that and we feel really good about ourselves, we don't worry so much about moving too fast. And I'm not talking about intimate sexual relations, things like that, but as far as vulnerability goes, you know, like I could stand up in a crowd and tell you the worst thing I've ever done in my life. And I've done that. And when I was a fundamentalist, I was abusive to one of my children. I'm terribly regretful and ashamed of, and it, it was hard for me to say publicly because I've been on several podcasts talking about you know, what it's like to be brainwashed on a deep level that you, you know, I wasn't burning in with cigarettes or anything, but there's no way you could catalog my behavior as a parent as anything other than abusive. And my son suffered psychological consequences because of it. But when we hide those things, when we don't, when we're not vulnerable about that, we don't help anyone and we don't help ourselves. We have to be confident enough to say, I was wrong and it's okay because I'm not perfect and it's okay. And I'm not excusing any of my behaviors or what I did in the past, it was wrong. Um, but it, it frees other people that we need to go, oh, God, I'm not perfect either. Wow, it's so nice. I don't have to wear a mask with you, <laughs> you know? When we take off our masks, we can really connect. <laughs> mm, I love I love how hopeful we're ending this and thank you so much for your work in this world as well because I think the most important thing to highlight is that we have the power to change ourselves and so whatever situation we're at currently if we don't like it we can change it and like you're helping people do that and it's a challenge it is a challenge to change but when we really that's why i love subconscious work when we change on a subconscious level when we get out the roots of trauma and pain and the deep insecurities and we transform those and transform those beliefs everything in life begins to change particularly our relationships with others i couldn't have said it better myself thank you again tiffany for sharing your time light and energy with me if you'd like to connect with her you can find her information on her website which i'll link in the show notes 
Or if you want a personal introduction, of course, you can reach me at Don't Be Strangers on Instagram. The Instagram page will also have links to our Discord and the application to co-host if either of these things interest you. Love letter number 11. Today is Friday, June 17th, 2022, at the eve of my birthday. As I've promised, I'll tell you a little bit more about my personal experience with hypnotherapy. So for context, I never had any experience with any other forms of therapy, but I've always heard of the benefits of attending therapy through all of my friends who have tried it. But I love hacking life and taking shortcuts, so when I heard about hypnotherapy, I was like, hey, why not? This is therapy, but faster, right? So growing up at the intersection of Asian perfectionism and American hustle culture, I always attributed my obsession with productivity as a product of my own high expectations for myself. But the truth was, we were never taught to celebrate wins, only to push forward and create new goals, creating an endless loop of dissatisfaction. It was an exhausting life. Through a combination of nature and nurture, I had developed an addiction to productivity, and the side effect was chronic stress. If you'd like to hear the full love letter, I'll be dropping that episode soon as a bonus episode, maybe even tomorrow for my birthday? Aside from reindulging myself with writing, taking theater therapy classes here in Cusco, taking online therapy as a birthday gift to myself with a chica in Mexico City, and most recently dance classes of the Afro-Americano origins, I'm also revamping my pen pals club and community. If you'd like to stay tuned for information for how you can be personally connected with two new friends a month who are introspective and open-minded students of life like you, please follow us on Instagram at Don't Be Strangers or our website at don'tbestrangers.club where you can drop your email for me to notify you of all the latest and greatest. I can't believe I only have a week left here in Cusco and then I'll be headed to Lima. As always, please write to me. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, don't be a stranger.